Welcome to Big Questions. This is Cal Fussman, and this episode is all about mental strength. And Lord, after you hear what I just did, I'm gonna need some. My guest today is Amy Morin, international best-selling author of 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do. She's a psychotherapist, and her books were born after she went through some really difficult life experiences and then observed how many of her patients were able to be optimistic after slamming into terrible times, while others were ready to give up on life after suffering minor inconveniences. We're all better off for the conclusions that Amy has reached. She speaks around the world about mental strength, And check this out. She flew from Florida to Los Angeles just to be on Big Questions. We met at WeWork, had the conversation, then she went to the airport and flew back, left me speechless and filled with gratitude. But maybe she sensed that I was in desperate need of a psychotherapy session. You'll hear why as soon as the conversation starts. But first, I've got to thank my sponsors for bringing it to you. That means Sportique. It feels wonderful being able to pass on the things we love to others. Could be a book or a song or a new restaurant. That's how I feel when I tell you about Sportique. Because when you get into a Sportique hoodie, comfy tee, or pair of sweatpants, you're going to smile. When I go to breakfast with Larry King and see some of my buddies at the table show up in their hoodies, it makes me happy knowing that I've pointed them to that sense of comfort. Go to sportique.com, that's S-P-O-R-T-I-Q-E, and see how comfortable you can be. Even better, use the offer code CAL for a 20% discount. And then you'll want to tip people you know off about Sportique. And WeWork, my home away from home. The other day I was speaking in Austin, and on the way to my hotel, the car passed to WeWork. I didn't even need any meeting space at the moment, but it made me feel good simply knowing that if I did need to get some work done or to meet somebody, WeWork was there for me. The beauty of WeWork is that you're covered no matter what kind of office space you need. You need space the size of a phone booth? WeWork has got it. You need to slide back the door to a comfortable office? They got that too. Conference room, theater space? Yep. As you're about to hear, I'm going to try to lift my game as a CEO. That means I'm going to need a plan B, a plan C, and a plan D which is even more reason why WeWork makes me feel my back is covered no matter what I'm going to need. So check out WeWork, and for a 20% discount, go to www.we.co slash cal. You'll be glad you did. I've got to figure out a way to put all these discounts on calfussman.com because there are other items you might like to know about, like my intent bracelets, and Steamline Luggage. Bottom line is, I only mention products on this podcast that I love 
and I'm completely behind. They make my life more joyful, and they can make yours too. Now, on to Amy Morin, my psychotherapy session, and some mental strength for all of us. Amy, you came in the nick of time. <laughs> I need a psychotherapist. Well, good. I'm glad I'm here then. <laughs> so when you do psychotherapy, how does it work? Like somebody comes into your office and how do you start? So usually they come in and I just ask them the question, what brings you in? And sometimes they'll have the answer of, well, my doctor told me or my spouse told me I have to be here. Oh, okay. Well, then why do they tell you uh, that you should come to therapy? Other times people will just open up and say, I've been struggling with this issue, whether it's depression or they're having some sort of uh, stress-related issue that they don't know how to deal with. But uh, a lot of people just come in and they're ready to start talking the second they get in the door. I'm ready to start talking. Okay. <laughs> I am ready to start talking. <laughs> I did something crazy the other night. Okay. I'll back up and I'll explain the root of the problem. And then you'll see why I did the crazy thing. Okay. All right. So I started out as a journalist and went to journalism school and started in newspapers, went to magazines, and then wrote books and... Now, I got a microphone in front of me. But when I went to journalism school, we were taught that there is a wall between you, the writer, you, the editorial person, you, the person who gets the news and puts it out, and the people who sell the product. Mm -hmm. So you don't ever sell. You are there to write. And there's a wall between you and the people who sell. Just don't cross it. Because if you cross it, you're done. You're toast. You will never be respected again. If they see you on the other side and they think that you're writing for a product or for somebody else, then nobody's going to have you anymore. And this thing that you really love to do will basically be taken away from you. Mm -hmm. And I believed it. And I never crossed the wall, never crossed the wall. And time passed, and I had a wonderful time writing. I went out and interviewed everyone, my childhood heroes, Muhammad Ali and Larry King, and everyone from Al Pacino to Richard Branson. And in all that time, I never crossed over the wall. But then I started this podcast and my life took me in a very different direction. And now, as you know, because you're the author of best-selling books, if you want to get what you do across, you have to be out selling it. Right. Only this wall exists in my mind, even though it no longer exists in real life. Mm-hmm. So I knew I'd been battling for years, like four or five years, trying to take down this wall, like sledgehammering it. And finally, 
last week, I think the last brick went down. And it brings me to a quote that I saw on your website, which when I saw it, I said, that's it. That's why she's my psychotherapist. (laughs) And your quote read, when you give up the things that are holding you back, you can accomplish incredible feats. Your words. Yes. So I've just given up the wall. So now I'm thinking, before I even read your quote, that I need to do an incredible feat. Mm -hmm. So I'm speaking. I speak now. And I do storytelling workshops, and I help companies tell their stories. And I didn't really broadcast this very much. I might mention it occasionally, but I never like sold it. Mm-hmm. But I was speaking at Entrepreneurs Organization in Fort Worth, and in front of the crowd, I said, the wall is down. By the end of May... I am going to bring in $1 million. (laughs) I love the smile on your face. (laughs) I am going to bring in $1 million in new revenue from my storytelling workshops and my speaking. Now, I have no idea how I'm going to do this. It was the craziest thing to say. But I said it, Uh and now I'm accountable. Now there are people on LinkedIn saying, okay, Cal, how's it going? (laughs) What do I do now? Or like, what's my problem? Well, uh, first of all, why do you think it's a problem that you said it? Okay, so it's it's not a problem. You tell me, does it feel like a, what about (laughs) it feels like a problem? All right, here's the thing, and throughout my life, I have always seemed to do best when I make a grand gesture, Mm -hmm. okay? For instance, when I was 16, without really learning how to box and without much training, and after being told, look, you have to understand what you're doing before you get into a boxing ring and enter the Golden Gloves because... We guarantee you that the person that you're in with is going to know what they're doing. And I said, I, I can do this. I can do this. And I, I got in my first fight, I was like knocked down and to the point where I almost didn't know where I was and they stopped the fight. And more than 20 years later, I said, I, my son was born. Actually, my son wasn't born that yet, but I knew that I was going to start to have kids. Mm -hmm. And everybody in my family, whenever they introduced somebody new to me, would bring up this fight where Cal got smashed down in the Golden Gloves. Like It was just a comical family story. He didn't know what he was doing. And at that moment, I realized, okay, my kids are going to start to hear this story because I just got married. My kids are going to hear the story. And I was watching the best fighter in the world. His name was Julio Cesar Chavez Mm -hmm. on TV fighting at that point. And he was probably about 84-0 at the time, 84 wins, no losses with like 73 knockouts. He was one of the great fighters of all time. 
and I'm yelling at him on the screen. And my wife is just starting to laugh at me because she said, yeah, I know about you and the golden gloves. And I said, you see that guy? I'm gonna get in the ring with him. And I went to GQ magazine and I said, if I can get in the ring with Julio Cesar Chavez, will you let me write a story about it? <laughs> and they went to the big boss and the big boss said, will he sign a, like a release? <laughs> if he gets killed, <laughs> we're not responsible. And I said, yeah. And I did get to fight with Julio Cesar Chavez. And it was a great story, which I'm still telling. It's a long story. We don't have that much time on this podcast. But the point is that now when my son and daughters think of me, there's a big picture of me in the ring with Julio Cesar Chavez in, on my wall. Right. Right. So that's the kind of person that I am. And this applies along the way. I mean, when I wanted to learn about wine, I learned at Windows of the World, at the top of the World Trade Center, uh, it, the wine list was 1,500 pages. The Windows of the World sold more wine than any other restaurant in the world at the time. And when I learned there, uh, I became the sommelier right before the planes came in and took the World Trade Center down. And then it took me 10 years to write the story because I was so knocked off balance. But it won a James Beard Award. And it's just another case of other people can go to a little wine class. I have to be the sommelier at the top of the world. Right. Okay. So you see there's this pattern in my life where I go off and swim with 18-foot tiger sharks. And if I want to take a trip... It's 10 years around the world without a home. I do these extravagant things basically because I'm curious to see what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. Except now everybody's watching me and I have to figure out how to make $1 million in new speaking and workshop revenue in the next two months. Right. Is that crazy? It is crazy, but <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, there, it sounds like if you've done these other things, you make these declarations and then you make it happen. It's probably a pretty good chance somehow you're going to figure this out. Well, that's good news. I would imagine, but I guess is your right now. How stressed are you about that? Now that you've made this public proclamation of what you're going to do, does it cause stress or is it exciting? Or I got to be honest, I was relieved. Really? Yes. I woke up feeling like I was no longer locked in. The wall was down. And here's what happened. I, I've been doing these workshops. I don't really tell many people about them. You know how if you were watching Bill O'Reilly's television show on Fox, like every time he'd put out a book, he would hold up the book. This is my new book. Right. You can get it at, and then there would be a quote from somebody who read the book saying, Bill, we love the book. And I, like, I could, I just could never even think of doing that, but I was torn and held back. And then I was sitting with a sales department and they had me in for a workshop. And the leader of the sales team said to me, Cal, when Apple wanted to release a new product years ago, who went out and sold it? 
And I said, Steve Jobs. And then he looked at me like, uh, you get the point? Right. You're right. the CEO of your company. It's time for you to step on the stage. Yeah. So once he said that, the next time I stepped on the stage, I just said, <laughs> $1 million. <laughs> and you have what, six weeks or how? Uh, no, May 31st. Okay. So I think this podcast will come out in the beginning of April. So it'll be at that point, seven, maybe seven weeks, something like that to okay. bring in a million dollars of new revenue. So you broke free and then you set this huge goal that I think most people would never, ever attempt. And you gave yourself a fairly short timeline. Right. See, if I, I could have said in the next year. Right. And it still would have been impossible. Right. But you know what? I said, million dollar May. <laughs> and it just sounded like music to my ears. But I could have said by next May. Right. But Having two months means it's going to be highly focused. And I don't know why I did it, but I just did it. I feel free. And now I got to figure it out. Right. I think that's great. You do? I do. I think most of us do. You know, we need a deadline. Like, how many people do you know who said, I want to write a book someday? But if they don't have an editor that says, here's your due date and you better do it, then it never happens. It goes on the back shelf. So sometimes we need a due date and a, a deadline that says, I'm going to meet this goal. Of course, you set yours really quickly. But I also think because you publicly told people this, well, now you better scramble because people are watching, right? So Yeah. And, and, and everybody like emailing, how can I help? Well, that's the thing, right? I'm, I think you're going to have a lot of people in your corner who are going to say, let's do this. This is crazy. Right. And if it happens, if I'm able to do it, the reality is it's only be, going to be because of them. Because I have no experience doing this. So we'll see how it goes. There was another quote that I, I saw on, on your Twitter page, I think. Mountains aren't made without earthquakes. Oh, yeah. I was talking about, I was quoting somebody else about the struggles and how do you get strength sometimes. And sometimes it's the hardships that you go through that help you build the most strength in life. Yeah. So I just basically created an earthquake yep. in order to create a mountain. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, well, and I what think if I get swallowed what? up? <laughs> Well, you know, in this case, if you if it doesn't work, you'll have learned and you'll figure out, okay, what do I do next? I have no doubt you'll bounce back. I don't um, imagine that, that you're not going to meet it. But if you don't, you know you'll be okay either way, right? Okay, well, he here's the thing. Mm -hmm. And it, it should it's a very important to state this because I saw another quote that you wrote that overlapped with this. It's not like I want the million dollars to go off on a yacht somewhere mm -hmm. and lift a glass. It's that I want to expand this business, what I'm doing. I, I want to help people. I want to help people tell their stories better. Yes. Okay. I would like to hire people and give them jobs, maybe with health insurance. Right. And so I want to put this money to good use. And so what I thought was, if I had this money, I would be free to do what I want to do, which is help people tell their stories. And already I put out 
and this is the first time I did this. I put out an email blast explaining. I didn't explain Million Dollar May, mm -hmm. but I said, okay, I'm going to get up on the stage and I'm going to sell what I'm doing. And immediately I started to get back emails like, can you help me? <laughs> can you help me? So I know the need is there because in this day and age, storytelling only becomes more and more and more powerful. Think of this fact. In the history of man and women, all of humanity, everything that's been created, 90% of it has been produced in the last two years. Wow. There is a tornado of information just getting bigger and moving faster. And it's hard to get through that. Right. And so our companies can get lost. We can get lost. And the only way to get through is with a story that makes you lean in, mm -hmm. grabs your attention, makes you remember, endure, that you can use for a tool of leadership, can change the game. Right. So I know I have this thing that I can give to people and help them. But I've just said, you know what? If I got a million bucks in new business, then I would be able to invest in the right way. And I could say, okay, who can I help now? Right. And not have to worry about anything. So that's why I did it. So, you know, and I think that's so important to have a purpose outside of, I just want the money for the, for the sake of it. But when you know there's a purpose, so let's say you make $900,000 instead of a million. So what? You can still at least do a lot of stuff with, with the money that you have, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I, it would be interesting to see how I would take it if I would see that I failed mm. because I set the goal and I didn't make it. Or if I would look and I'd say, that's pretty good, Cal. Right, right. Uh, you tricked yourself into it, but you landed in a good spot. I have no idea what's going to happen or how it's going to look. I might be humiliated, but I just had to do it. Right. I just felt like I had to just step out and do something that was an incredible feat. The last two words of your quote. And along the way, I'm sure there will be a lot of fun. Yeah. We all like sort of the underdog story, right? I think it's the ultimate underdog story. The, you know, who do you root for? The person that's been, say, you know, training their entire life or the guy who, you know, seems to be the the one that you think isn't going to win, the one that you really want to say, gosh, this person's crazy because your goals are so big. But I think for most of us, we don't dream big enough. We don't make goals big enough. We just sort of set the bar too low and then we get bored or we don't meet it. So I think when you set these big crazy goals and then you work towards it, and that's what life is all about, right? It makes it more exciting. This is fantastic. I'm starting to feel good about this. <laughs> <laughs> now, when you started off on your way to be a psychotherapist, did you know at like age seven, I'm going to be a psychotherapist? No, not at all. <laughs> I was going to be a doctor pretty much my whole life. I thought, I'm going to be a doctor. In fact, I went to college um, thinking I was a pre-med student. My first day of class, we were supposed to dissect cats. Everybody in the room was really excited about dissecting a cat, except for me. You and had cats when you were a kid? I had cats. I loved cats. But also I thought, I'm not really into this blood and guts and whether it's a human or a, or a cat. And it dawned on me, I didn't actually want to be a doctor. I like the idea of being a doctor, but I didn't really want to do it. 
And so when I got out of class that day, I have an older sister and she was a psychology major. And so I called her and I said, okay, I need to change my major. I'm thinking of psychology, but I can't go back to this class tomorrow because I'm not dissecting a cat. And she said, oh yeah, well you could go into psychology or you could go into social work because then you at least get a social work license when you're done and you can probably do more with that than a psychology degree. I was like, okay. But to be honest, I didn't even know what a social worker really did. But I thought I'll just switch my major, get myself out of dissecting a cat. And then at some point I'll switch to something else once I figure it all out, you know, next year or the year after. But then I sort of fell in love with social work and that's what I got my undergrad degree in. And then what happened? Uh, so then when I was done with that, I thought, well, I'm going to go to graduate school because I wanted to be a therapist because a bachelor's degree in social work doesn't have a lot of options. So I thought, I'll go on and get my master's so I can be a therapist. So I thought, you know, rather than helping heal people's bodies, what if I work on healing their minds? And so I went to grad school and became a therapist. And what was your first day of being a therapist like? Were you, were you nervous? I was. I walked in and I thought, I, I know nothing. <laughs> how, am I going how, to, right now. how am I going to help <laughs> these people? I think, you know, I'd done like this fast track of college. So I was either 21 or 22 by the time I became a therapist. And so I was like, I, ha I really have no life skills. What am I going to tell these people who come into my office? And so my very first job, I worked mostly with kids and teenagers because I thought I can relate to... <laughs> teenage stuff <laughs> and um but it took a long time before i felt competent enough to to really start working with adults and addressing more adult-like issues and what was it like say the first time your patient was like an older man it would be really hard to put yourself in those shoes do you just sit and listen and curiously ask questions that's, yeah, a lot of it is about just listening, asking questions, and then trying to go back to, okay, how can I help you think differently? If you're feeling a certain way, how can we help you feel differently? Even if I can't relate to what it's like to be a 65-year-old man with depression, this is what I've got, everything I've learned in school, what I've learned in textbooks, and trying to put it all to use. But And up until that point in my early career, I'd never really gone through anything horrible and it was, it was when I was 23, it was when my mom passed away. And so oh. it was shortly, shortly into my career, but it was sort of my first round of thinking, oh, okay, I can relate to, to pain on a whole new level now. And what did that do to the way that you provided therapy? Well, it definitely gave me sort of this new sense of empathy for people who were struggling. But it also set me on the journey of saying, okay, I... I'm not just interested in sharing what I know from textbooks and all the information I got from college was great. But on the other hand, I really want to know on a personal level, what makes people tick? Because I'd see some people who had, who they'd come in and they had gone through horrible things in their life and yet they were still happy, optimistic people. And they might be struggling with depression or anxiety, but they had hope that life could be good again. And I'd see other people who maybe had a hangnail and they thought their life was over and they'd sort of thrown in the towel and they were ready to give up. They were angry, they were bitter. So I really wanted to know what's the difference between the people that go through struggles and come out stronger versus the people that have these sort of struggles and then they can't move forward. And so I started for my own self because I thought, I don't wanna be that person 10 years from now who's angry and bitter and mad at the world. I wanna come out on the other side. So for me, it was an opportunity to, to study people right in the moment and figure it out for my, for my own self. What, what is it that makes some people do better than others? 
And I guess that's what led to this stack of books in front of me. It is. Because, you know, in college, you're all about, okay, find out what people are doing well and tell them to keep doing those things. Point out their strengths. And I thought, great, that, that'll work. But then at some point it occurred to me, you know, if I, if I were going to go, say, see a fitness trainer because I wanted to lose weight and they said run on the treadmill, great. But what if they didn't tell me to quit eating so many donuts? So I'd be awfully upset that I was working out and I wasn't getting anywhere. So I thought, well, if I don't point out these little bad habits that are holding people back, I'm really doing them a disservice. Yes, it's great you're practicing gratitude, but what if you also feel sorry for yourself six days out of the week? All the gratitude you attempt to practice isn't gonna get you anywhere. And so if I just built on people's strengths, I wasn't really helping them. So it occurred to me- You had to take out the weaknesses. Exactly, which was something that, you know, again, I just wasn't taught that. But when I realized it and started working on it in my own, my own life, but also in my therapy office, I would see people get better much faster. So what was it in your own life? What weaknesses in your own life did you find that you, you started to say, cutting that out, cutting that out? Well, so, you know, chapter one of my books about not feeling sorry for yourself, because that's where I was, is thinking this isn't fair. And, you know, I was adult, an adult when my mom passed away, but she there's so many things she hadn't seen. She didn't have grandkids. She had planned on retiring and I thought, you know, here I am, I have to go through all of these adult things now without my mom. I can't ask her for advice, this is terrible. But I had lots of pity parties for myself. And, you know, and on an intellectual level, I knew that feeling sorry for myself wasn't good. But on the other hand, it's one thing to know it and something else to do it. And that, you know, grief is messy and difficult to go through, but feeling sorry for yourself is different than just being sad or experiencing the pain. So that was one big thing for me was to remind myself not to feel sorry for myself. Okay, number one, do not feel sorry for yourself. What was the next big observation? So I guess another big observation was uh, not to give away my power, to say I'm not gonna let other people be in control of how I think, feel, or behave. So one of my big things was, you know, it's easy to say this person makes me mad. Something I worked with on therapy patients all the time, like, hey, don't do this, but it's harder to not do it in my own life. So, you know, as I was going through hard times and difficult circumstances, it was really easy to say, blame somebody else for, uh, for, for me feeling bad. It's not fair, I shouldn't have had to go through this, but also, um, you know, somebody else is, is making me feel bad. Maybe it was a friend who was talking about her mom and I think, well, you know, you're like twisting the knife because now I don't have a mom. Crazy stuff that wow. goes that you go through when you're when you're grieving. And you know, we had all this stuff that happened after my after my mother passed away. Like two weeks later my dad's house caught on fire and almost oh, burned man. down. Right. For a while it was crazy stuff. <laughs> and and so coming out of that, it took a long time uh, to start to feel better, but eventually I did. But it was three years to the day of when my mom died that my husband passed away. Oh, man. Yeah. And so to How me, long had you been married? Uh, we got married young, so we were 21 when we got married. And he passed away when we were 26. We were the same age, so... What happened? He had a heart attack. Did he have heart problems all along or this he, is- he did not. And now we know he probably was born with a heart defect that was just never diagnosed. And doctors have assured me that even if they had caught it, that there's nothing that they would have done about it anyway. I try to 
make sure I convince myself of that or I choose to believe it uh, to know, okay, well, there's nothing that we could have done anyway. But to be a 26-year-old widow was the strangest, most surreal, bizarre experience. It was like, at the same time, most people my age were getting married. Some were starting to think about kids. I was widowed and I didn't have a mom. And I thought, oh, this really isn't how I envisioned my 20s going. So where did that take you in the workspace? What did it make you curious about? So as far as, you know, working again, I thought, all right, now, now what do you do if you have gone through repeated things that are rough? How do I keep learning from these people? I mean, I had people in my office who had gone through sort of tragedy after tragedy after tragedy their entire lives. And so even though they were coming in for me to help them, I really wanted to know, so tell me about this. How do you get through it? Just from a personal level. So I was studying them. I took... After Lincoln passed away, I took about three months off from work because uh, I knew I, I wasn't in any place to, to go into the office and and help people. But uh, did, Was that helpful or did it put you in a place where you're alone and feeling sorry for yourself? <laughs> it helped in, in a lot of ways because there was so much to do just as far as uh, figuring out um, on a practical level, like if the light bill was in his name, the light company wouldn't uh, talk to me, so I had okay. to put stuff in my name. Um, that kind of stuff, getting some stuff shuffled around and figured out and to just finally figure out, okay, what am I going to do? Like, do, do I keep his car? Do I not keep his car? There was so many questions I had. So... And I was really fortunate during those three months. I didn't plan, it was never planned like when people would come visit me or when people would do anything. But for three months straight, I, it was either lunch or dinner that I never ate alone. Somebody would call and invite me. And it might be one of Lincoln's friends, it might be one of my own friends, but I had so much support during that time that it helped me even though I was alone and I was now living alone, but I didn't feel alone um, as much as I certainly could have. Man, so basically, your situation, coupled with all the situations you were listening to, was really a library blueprints on how to deal with loss and our own problems and dealing with it. Right. I felt, you know, at that point, I was, I just felt so fortunate that I had become a therapist. I would have had no knowledge of how to deal with grief or how to experience pain. I would have been at a complete loss, but sort of, okay, I became a therapist. So I learned these skills on an intellectual level, but in my work, I'd seen it in real life. Everybody who came into my office was a case study. So I got to know firsthand what helped this person, what didn't help, how did they get through it? And then I got to practice it in my own life too. And where did the idea to write a book about this come? So it was, let's see, Lincoln passed away when we were 26, when I was 30. Uh, by then I had gotten remarried and life was like, okay, this is my, my next shot in life. And when I got remarried, my husband Steve and I decided that we were going to buy a different house because in a different area, sort of get this fresh start and I get a new job. And I thought, okay, good. Life is taking a turn. Life is looking good again. And uh -oh, then, yeah, no, yeah, no, no kidding, right? No, no. So Steve's dad gets diagnosed with terminal cancer. And he, you know, as a father-in-law, he'd taken this big role in my life. And he was one of those people that sort of like was my biggest fan. And I thought, 
No, like not again. And, you know, when I had lost my mom and I had lost my first husband, it was so sudden and unexpected in both cases. Not this. This one, you know, we knew it was coming. Doctors said, you know, he's got a couple of months left maybe. And I thought, oh, you know, finally, why is it when life finally feels like it's going well again that I have to lose somebody so close to me? This isn't fair. I didn't want to go through it. I didn't want to see my husband lose his dad because I knew what that was like. And remembered okay if you've gone through anything and you've learned anything it's that feeling sorry for yourself will keep you stuck it'll hold you back and so I wrote a list of all the things that mentally strong people don't do it was supposed to be a letter for myself uh, to get me through this because I thought you got a couple of months and how do you want to spend it hosting a pity party or do you want to get through it in a way that's going to be healthy and and as helpful as possible. So I would read over this list. And when I was done writing it, I had 13. There was no, wasn't supposed to be any magic in the number 13. It was just a letter for myself. But I would read it and take it out of my pocket when I needed a moment of, okay, you've got this, you can get through this. And after a few days, I just, I found, okay, this is helping me because I'm getting rid of those things that are draining my mental strength. Maybe it would help somebody else. And so I decided to put it online. There was no context. It was basically just the list. But I put it online, thought maybe somebody else will find it helpful, and stepped away from my computer and really didn't know what happened. But within, I think it was maybe three days, it was read 10 million times. Whoa! And before I knew it, it's been read 50 million times now, but before I knew it, you know, Forbes magazine is calling and, and they republished it and it got on 10 million views on their website when they reprinted it. And then um, Fox News is calling saying, can we interview you? And it was sort of thrust into this spotlight with everybody thinking, she's a therapist, she knows all this stuff, but nobody knew the story behind it, that I'd written it as a letter to myself and I didn't tell them. So I end up going on Forbes they did an on-camera interview with me, and I was on Fox, and I did a bunch of other stuff in New York. I did this whirlwind tour, and everybody's talking about, this is so good that you have this list, and you've learned it from your patients. And I said, yep, and I didn't tell them the story. And by this point, it was three days after my father-in-law had passed away. Oh, man. So I find myself in this really weird space of all this exciting stuff going on, yeah, all this sad stuff behind the scenes. And in the midst of all that, a literary agent calls and said, you should write a book. I had no plans, never intended to write a book, never thought that I would. And to be honest, I didn't even know what a literary agent was. <laughs> and so I kind of just blew her off because, you know, millions of people are reading my article. So I'm getting all of these strange emails and calls from people offering me, you know, give me this much money and I'll do this for you. And so she kind of went in the pile of those sorts of emails. But fortunately, she called me back a few days later and said, what do you think? And I said, well, I got to tell you, there's a story behind why I wrote this, but I'm a therapist and I usually listen to people's problems. I don't tell my own. And she said, well, if you decide to tell the backstory, I think people will have a lot more respect for you and it will, it will resonate with them more, but you certainly don't have to. And so kind of thought about it for a while but, but and said all right maybe I'll tell a little bit of the story we'll see what happens but within a month we had a book deal and they gave me a, a tight deadline and within a year my first book came out and it changed the course of my life <laughs> how did it change the course of your life so you know as a again as a therapist I'm a private person I was doing therapy in a rural town where you really don't tell anybody anything about your life. If you're the therapist, then you become really used to listening to people's problems, not sharing yours. And so to put my story out there was really different. 
And I'm usually I'm more comfortable being the person that sits quietly in the back of a room. But when the uh, article came out and when the book came out, I'm suddenly getting phone calls from people all around the world asking me to do speaking engagements. And I think, I don't know that I could get on a big stage in front of people and, and talk. Like I've never done anything like this before. And so it changed the course of my career. At some point I decided um, I need to take a break from doing therapy because I just don't have time to, to do speaking engagements and write books and do all of this stuff, plus sit in an office and be present with people. And so I took a break from therapy. Um, at the moment I'm not doing it, but then I had the opportunity to go on and write more books. And I moved to a sailboat in the Florida Keys and <laughs> life is become quite different from what it was. <laughs> so now you're on a sailboat. Mm -hmm. Is it peaceful? It is quite peaceful. Is that what you were seeking? Um, you know, I didn't really know about living on a boat. It was my husband's dream since he was a little kid to live on a boat. Uh, you know, was... So all did all this help your husband have his dream? Yes, definitely. Because who, who, oh, you know, his his bedroom was decorated in sailboats when he was four years old. So someday, so I was like, oh, okay, someday we'll live on a sailboat. But how are we ever going to get to that point? You know, thinking when I was retired someday. But um, then we decided, you know, if I'd learned anything else, it's that life's fairly unpredictable. If you have a dream and you want something you want to do in life, you better do Just it now. Just go do it. Yeah. And how long have you been on this sailboat? Uh, this is my third year. Do you think you'll be on a sailboat for the rest of your life? I don't think so, but I don't know. At this point, you know, so many people have think that you have to have your life sort of planned out. I've learned mm, I don't really care, whatever. You know, I think I could be happy in a lot of places. I'm happy on a sailboat right now, but if I'm not in a few years, I think we'll go do something else. So first book comes out, 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do. And how long is it before the next one comes out? So let's see, the first book came out in 2014. Right. And the next book came out in 2017. When the first book came out, sort of like the publisher thought, all right, if 50 million people read the article, right. a lot of people are going to read this book. When it first came out, it did not hit any bestseller lists. It was kind of flat. Oh, And so we thought, man. oh, so I thought, all right, I'm a therapist. I got to write a book. That's awesome. <laughs> but, you know, I'm still just going to be the therapist that wrote a book. And... But like over the course of years, it started selling more copies and more copies. Oh, it slowly caught on. It was slow. And which, you know, I had a conversation with my agent at one point and she said, you could probably get another book deal someday, but probably not with the same publisher because it didn't meet their expectations. So I guess kind of like you, when somebody says you probably aren't going to do something, it was like in my head, I went, oh, challenge accepted. <laughs> Ah, <laughs> and thought, okay. let's see what happens. And so I worked as hard as I could to, to market my book. And I was really grateful that a few years later, I approached oh. the publisher about the parenting book. And they were on board with it 100%. Okay, so the same publisher yes. did come back just yes. because you were able to grind away and sell more and more books. Because if you're speaking... It's a lot easier to sell the book, right? Because right. then you just put it in the deal. Exactly. You exactly. want you want the speech, you buy the book. Right. And so it's you know, it took a while for it to catch on, but then once it did, I sell more copies now a week than I did when it first came out, a lot more. And so it was a much slower, gradual increase in sales than I think anybody expected. But I'm grateful that 
word of mouth has been really important. And why was it that um, you decided to write about the 13 things that mentally strong parents don't do and the 13 things mentally strong women don't do? So it really came from readers. Again, I've been flying by the seat of my pants with with this. After the first book came out, the biggest question I kept getting was, how, okay, how do we teach kids how to be mentally strong? And a lot of people would say, if I'd only learned these things sooner, my uh, life could yeah. have been different. So if instead of learning these things at 45, if I would have learned them when I was 15, it may have changed the course of my life. And so I thought about, okay, how do we teach this to kids? I could write a book for kids, but... I don't know, too many 10-year-olds are going to sit down, read this book, put it down, and then start implementing it. So I thought, you know, the real way to get this into to changing kids' lives is I need to teach the parents. How do you teach your kids to be mentally strong? I wanted to teach them how to be a coach. Okay, so it's like on the airplanes when they tell the parents, okay, in the event that the oxygen mask falls, you put it on your face first, and then... Yes, yes, exactly. Put one on the kid. So... I wanted to, to write the parenting book as a way to say, okay, this is when in the moment when your kid doesn't make the basketball team, the way you respond makes a big difference. Or when your child wants to get the A, they get the B, how do you react to that? Or how do you help them make sure that they have the life skills that they need? Because we focus so much on academics, but so little on social and emotional skills. Why, why is that? If I was inventing a school, I think I would have classes on listening, classes on asking questions, classes on very basic things that we use every day, on storytelling, Mm -hmm. as opposed to putting me through physics, which I don't really know that I'm ever going to use. Right. And I think that that would be wonderful if we did that, because I don't know about you, but Pythagorean theorem, really haven't used that since high school, right? (laughs) Yeah, and the people who want it, it's good for them. Right. But everybody can use listening skills. Yes. And everybody can and should learn how to ask better questions. Yes. And it's not only is it completely avoided, but from the time that a child enters kindergarten... Their curiosity, which was able to roam free. Mom, mom, mom. Why, why, why? You show up in school and all of a sudden it's, no, 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 no. You want to ask a question, raise your hand. And the reality is, is that it becomes the teacher asking the question, not the students. Yes. And so the curiosity is getting crushed. And yet it's crushed so that we can learn the Pythagorean theorem and physics. And, you know, they did this study. So they ask, um, they start following these kindergarten kids through life to figure out which the kids are going to be most successful. It wasn't the kids who knew how to read before they got into kindergarten or the kids whose parents had taught them basic math or they knew all their colors. It was the kids who had the best social and emotional skills more likely to go to college, more likely to have full-time jobs, more likely to, to get through life. Kids who lack those skills in kindergarten were much more likely to have substance abuse problems, much more likely to go to jail, need public assistance, to have much more, many more struggles in life. And you think, and yet we don't focus on those things. We tend to focus on teaching them how to read and write and do math. Well, by those standards, I should have been pretty successful. <laughs> 
And now here I am in the position of asking, <laughs> looking for a million dollars in new sales by the end of May. This is wild. What are the things that I need to be mentally strong as I go off on this journey? I would say to take a look at the way that you think. All right. And to notice if you have those, because the way you think affects how you feel, it affects how you behave. So if you're thinking, you know, we don't want to be underconfident, but you also don't want to be overconfident. People that walk into something and think this is going to be super easy, then they uh, don't put in as much effort. So you want to make sure that you... No, no, I believe me. I don't think this is going to be super easy. No, that's <laughs> so, not going to happen. To, well, then what do you think? So when you think, okay, what's the first thing that comes into your head when you think, all right, I made this goal for myself? Well, my first thought is, okay, what's the first thing to do? Okay. And that was see a psychotherapist. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. So you can check Why that out. Why did off I the do list. that? I'm already one for one. My first day, mission accomplished. Uh-huh. And not only that, it's great because you're telling me that's fine, Cal. Sure. And so then I guess let's talk about the emotional aspect. How like how do you feel about it? Are you, is it scary? Is it exciting? Is it a I'm sure it's a combination of a bunch of things. It makes me feel curious uh-huh. as to how I'm going to do this. And I haven't thought through it, but what's what's happening is my curiosity is taking me to people and saying, you, do you have any ideas? Do you know anybody who has trouble telling their story? You know any companies that are struggling because they're not telling their story mm -hmm. right? If you do, tell them to email me. And that way, I'll have leads. Right. <laughs> right. So then you put it into action. Because when we talk about mental strength, it's the three parts. The way you think, the way you feel, and the way that you behave. All right. Somebody who thinks, gosh, this isn't going to work out, they feel nervous. They feel disappointed. And then they behave in a way that usually reinforces that. If you feel, if you say, all right, I'm thinking I've got to do this, you feel excited, curious. Curious. It's going to fuel that behavior to say, now, what do I do, right? That's and right. you take action. How am I going to do this? So that's that's good. good start. That's what we call the, one of those positive cycles. Once you get in a cycle, it's hard right. to break it. You get caught up in a negative cycle of thinking, this is horrible, this is awful. Uh, then you feel horrible and awful. Then you behave in a way that isn't likely to make it happen. If you get caught in a positive cycle, you think, okay, let's do this. And when you run into an obstacle, you look at it like a challenge to overcome rather than something that's going to keep you stuck. Okay, so I've got the positive energy circling in the right way. Mm -hmm. But what's going to happen if I'm not moving forward very quickly or I'm stuck in mud? And I, maybe I still have that positive energy. Maybe I'm still curious. What am I going to run into then? Depends on your sort of your approach to problem solving. When you get it, when you run into a problem, you start looking at the calendar, thinking, how many weeks are left, or how many more speaking engagements do I need to do? How many more opportunities? And uh, or you run into something where you can't schedule enough between now and then. Depends on the problems you run into and what your approach is going to be to problem solving. How do you usually handle it when you run into a problem? How do you overcome it? What's your approach to dealing with a big challenge? My approach to dealing with a big challenge is basically 
being curious and wondering how am I going to get through this? And then maybe asking other people who've been in similar situations. You know, there's a guy who was on this podcast, Mick Ebeling, uh, and he was working around Hollywood uh, production. And he had a company that would get calls to do these crazy things on deadline. And everybody else would say that's impossible. And he would take them and say, oh, okay, we'll do it. And then he'd have to figure it out. And so he was doing that for a while. And then he upped it a notch to where he started to see people with incredible problems. A graffiti artist who was flat on his back in a bed, paralyzed, Mm. and could only use his eyes. And he figured out a way to use the graffiti artist's eye movements uh, and put it through a machine that enabled the artist to once again draw graffiti on a wall. And the first night they did it, like the guy wouldn't stop because it had been years. Right. It had been years since he was able to exercise it. So he just wanted to keep doing it and doing it. And then he heard about kids who were in the Sudan and in the midst of the civil war, uh, one kid in particular heard planes overhead, overhead, bombs dropped and the kid ran for a tree and he hugged the tree and the bomb blew up and the tree protected his body, but his arms that were wrapped around the tree They were lost. Mm. And Mick figured out the same principle. That's not impossible. How could we 3D print limbs, artificial limbs, for a kid in the Sudan? And they figured it out. And so I think, I'm glad you asked me that because that's the way I got to think. And because you surround yourself with people who do that, I think it take you know, I'm always big on asking people, who do you surround yourself with? Because it really tends to influence how we think, how we problem solve, how we see the world. If you were surrounded by people who, you know, complained about red lights and traffic jams and everyday occurrences and thought these things were horrible, awful, and terrible, and that somebody was out to get them and the world was a terrible, dark place, then be much less likely to approach things as a challenge that you can overcome. But when you surround yourself with people who, who do just that, something that maybe a lot of people would say is impossible or, or that's too bad that that person has that problem, rather than saying, how do I help this person solve that problem? I think that makes a huge difference. So when you run into something and you already said you asked for help, that's big. Most people don't, right? Okay, that's good. I asked for help. I have positive thoughts. Right. I asked for help. Got a community of people that do amazing things, people that you talk to on a regular basis. Who surrounded are. by people who do amazing things. This this is becoming to look a little more doable, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and I think you're going to have a, a whole huge cheering squad of people who are really going to want to see you succeed. And I think that's huge too, to know you've got, even if it's people just on LinkedIn that you don't know personally who are saying, how can I help you? Because I think we love to see somebody do something that's really big, something that so many people would say, well, you can't do that. And then we want to cheer them on and help them out. And then they also benefit from that because they got to be part of the solution too. Oh, I didn't think about that. So I'm making or I'm enabling somebody 
to get the most out of themselves. Because I, I know when I help somebody do something, that makes me feel good. That's why I'm doing this in the first place. Right. I just want to be able to wipe out everything that is holding me back from helping people and companies tell better stories so that I can just do it in the best way possible. Yes. It's just, I just want the freedom. It's, it's really not about the money. It's about the freedom to be able to do what I want to do. Mm-hmm. And I could see if I was watching this from a distance and I saw somebody struggling to be free to do what they wanted to do, I could see myself helping. Yes. And when people have like defined goals, we really like to help them too. And when they say, this is my purpose, rather than I just want a million dollars because I'm going to, as you said before, I'm going to go spend it on a yacht. I'm going to go do something crazy. Well, great. And we like to see people happy. But on the other hand, when you say, no, my purpose is really helping other people, but then people get to help you do that. Then it's like everybody gets to join in. We all feel good. We like to do favors for other people, but we also like to cheer them on and we like to have a success story in the end. Yeah, no, the way I'm, the way I see this, and this is where I was to where I'm going, okay? So I was able to interview everyone from Muhammad Ali to Mikhail Gorbachev to Jeff Bezos over a 20-year period for Esquire magazine, hundreds of icons who've shaped the history of the world. And after I would, I'd go back to a place where I was all alone and I would have the interview transcribed and then I would write their wisdom out in their words and it would get sent in to Esquire magazine and printed. And it was, in a sense, after I interviewed them, it was a lonely process. I'm in my room alone, looking at the transcripts, putting the words down in just the right way, sending it in, listening to an editor's reaction to it, then going over it again, sending it back in. Then it goes out to the world. I really don't ever see anybody reading it. Right. And don't know what happens after that outside of emails or letters might might come in. Back in the day, it was letters. But this is different. I mean, this is almost a little more what what you do in a way, where if you give a workshop in storytelling, you're helping somebody or a company with a problem mm-hmm. that's going to potentially enable the company to be stronger and hire more people. Right. And those people are going to have families and then kids are going to come and those kids may go to college because a great story was told about a company that shot into the stratosphere. Yes. That's what I want to do. And that is a much bigger reaction from the world than where I was before. Yeah. And I think, you know, for other people too, because we talk about storytelling a lot in therapy, it's all about the story you tell yourself, right? Are you the the victim that went through a whole bunch of horrible stuff and life was awful to you? Or are you somebody who survived all of that and you came out on the other side and you're stronger? 
And so when it comes to companies, when it comes to so many people, I think to help them shape their story, the story that you tell yourself, the story, how do you talk about your company? How do you share your story with other people in a way that is helpful, it's inspiring, but also makes you feel good. So I think that, yes, both the stuff that I do, the stuff that you do, I think it's quite related, but also I think, you know, you're giving something huge back that everybody wants to to be part of, and then you get to give back and what another positive cycle that you can create in the world. That's why I know it's the right thing to do. Yeah. But I had to tear down that wall in order to step on the other side and say, hey, I'm going to do this. I'm letting everybody know this is what I want to do. And that was, to me, the biggest accomplishment, tearing down an imaginary wall that was in my mind. And maybe as a therapist, that's what you're dealing with all the time. Yeah, a lot of it is, you know, and even on a practical level for myself, as a therapist, you don't sell anything. If I wrote a book and I was a ther- still doing therapy, I can't sell my book to my clients. It's just, you can't do that. So we're taught very much the same thing. You don't sell anything. So then you become an author and you realize nobody else is going to sell your book. You oh, you went through the it. same thing. Oh, absolutely. In fact, when I was done writing my first book, I talked to this uh, really successful author and I said, oh, good. You know, my book's already written. It's done. And he said... Well, you do know it's called the best sellers list, not the best writers list. And I was like, oh, oh now the hard work's <laughs> actually beginning. And so, so yeah, that's something I've had to tear down. But for people in my therapy office, that's a lot of it too. So many people will say, you know, I, I grew up and I was the, I was the, uh, you know, ugly duckling of the family and I can't shake that label that I have or I. And that really doesn't exist. It's only in their minds. Right. That so many people have some sort of a wall of thinking, well, I'm not good at math, so therefore I can't succeed in this particular business. Or I'm not the kind of person that gets on a stage and gives a speech, so I must not be a public speaker. And we put all these labels on ourselves. We come up with these rules for ourselves about what we are able to do, what we're not able to do. And keeps us stuck. Now, when you got up on stage to speak for the first time, was it scary? It was. So the first time I ever spoke, it was lucky. It was somebody that was going to interview me on a big stage. And that so makes I it easier. I didn't just have to have a whole, you know, 60-minute keynote planned. And so I got up there and I thought, what am I doing? But I thought, you know, I'm just going to answer her questions. And it was she did a great job. She didn't know. I didn't mention, hey, I've never actually done this before. They assumed that I had. But it was more like I, somebody in my therapy office, one-on-one, I was able to kind of forget the audience was there. But then I thought, okay, if I'm going to do this, I need some help figuring it out. So I first thing I did after that time that I spoke was I hired a coach to say, I don't know what I'm doing. I have no idea how to get on a big stage. And I, you know, do you use a PowerPoint? Do you just ramble? Do you have it memorized? I had so many questions. <laughs> wow. Well, you know what? Maybe I ought to hire a coach. Oh, absolutely. It's an option, right? It's an option. Absolutely. Well, let's see. Let's see. I think my first re- reaction is to, this is a very interesting point about myself, now that I'm being psychoanalyzed. Yes. (laughs) Because in my life, I would go off to travel around the world, and I didn't have a strategy. I didn't say I'm going to be in Florence on this date, in Oslo on that date. I just went someplace, and then the journey 
took me. So that's my MO. Mm-hmm. That's the way I roll. Now I'm realizing, okay, that salesman asked me when Apple want to sell a product, who went on stage to sell it? Well, it was Steve Jobs, but he was the CEO. Now I am the CEO. So maybe I need a strategy rather than going at this my old way where I was just ambling along and hoping positive developments would occur. Maybe I need to make those positive developments occur. Mm-hmm. I wonder, because this is sort of like unchartered territory. I don't know if, I can't think of anybody that I know that said, hey, I'm going to make a million dollars in seven weeks <laughs> by doing these things. And so- Well, it's actually getting a million dollars in business because I'm not going to make a million dollars. There's like fees and sure. the agency fees and management right. fee. But believe me, by the time it gets down to Cal, I'll be breaking even. Right, right. <laughs> That's the way it works, isn't it? But, to, you know, because I was talking to somebody the other day who was telling me about his strategies and click funnels and all of this really complicated stuff that he does and his lead magnets. And I was like, whoa, I'm just selling books and stuff. <laughs> but I don't have anything complicated. He had all of these systems in place. But and I... I wonder, my concern if you hired a coach is they'll have some sort of a system, but yours is like breaking the mold. I don't know that you would. Oh, man. But I wonder if you yeah. hired just like sort of like a, a think tank of people who could come up with other ideas for you to say, what if you tried this? What if you tried that? And I think that's what's happening. Yeah. I think people are hearing about it and saying like, how could I help? And then they're going to my, this is a beautiful man. <laughs> like he must've looked at my LinkedIn profile and said, Okay, let's put together a LinkedIn profile. (laughs) And and, and see, that's good because that's good coaching. He knows Mm -hmm. what to do. I have no idea what to do. Right. So I do need somebody to say, this is how the system works. Right. And maybe if enough of those people step up, it will not only help me through this next eight weeks, but also I'm going to really learn, oh, that's how LinkedIn does it. Oh, that's how Instagram does it. I finally, after all this time, just mastered Twitter. Uh For years, I was scared (laughs) to go on Twitter because I was an old school guy and I just, I didn't understand it. I was scared to set up this podcast. So I, I keep going to these new places. I have no problems with that. It's just this time I really went to the extreme in a way that is probably the most extreme challenge I've ever put in front of myself. Right. But I think sort of crowdsourcing these little pieces, right? Because if you hire just one coach, they'll say, oh, you have to work on your social media. One way, one way, right. right. Versus knowing that if you can, you know, just sort of crowdsource, hey, what are your ideas? Take the ones that you like weed out the ones that seem like it's, you know, because you don't have a lot of time. You don't have time to say, I'm going to completely redo my Instagram and come up with a brand new strategy and all of this other stuff. You got to do stuff that's going to work for you and it's going to work right now. Exactly. Exactly. So that's an idea. Crowdsource coaches. Have you announced this on social media? Have you put it out there that this is what you're doing? Right now. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) 
I didn't have the courage to do it any other way but with a psychotherapist. Because <laughs> I think once the word gets out there, people are going to step up and think, I really want to help you. Here's my idea. And that, I mean, I think you're going to be overwhelmed with ideas from people. Well, that's the other thing. So now I have a finite amount of time. And now what's going to happen is I'm going to be flooded with all this goodwill of advice. And, and here's, this is where I need some advice. Because if I can't get back to everybody, then I'll feel guilty. Right. <laughs> so what is the thing that's going to make me mentally strong in the case that I can't get back to everybody? So to know, because you're right, that's a real problem is if you then feel guilty. But if you know that just because you feel guilty doesn't mean you did something wrong, sometimes. Whoa, <laughs> man. Now that is a nugget of wisdom. Yeah. You didn't know that? Um, just because you feel guilty doesn't mean you did anything wrong. Yeah. Man, that's the quote of the day. Okay, then. But and to sit with an uncomfortable emotion like guilt or uncertainty doesn't mean that you aren't mentally strong. You just have to know that you can sit with that feeling. You can tolerate it. You don't need to be doing anything different because it won't get you to your goal. You could waste hundreds of hours replying to emails, but that takes away from the goal. So to And know, I could waste time being guilty. Right. So to know that you can feel guilty and still keep moving forward. It's an uncomfortable emotion, but it's not terrible, horrible, awful. It doesn't have to hold you back. You can tolerate it and that you're mentally strong enough to feel guilty and keep moving forward. It's okay to feel guilty as long as I keep moving forward. Right. All right. That's great advice. Because I think sometimes we get caught up and I do it myself too and I have to catch myself even now. But to know like if I feel nervous or I feel uncertain, I have to just remember, well, that's okay. You can feel that way. It doesn't have to affect your behavior. It doesn't have to affect everything. It doesn't have to hold you back. You can just feel it, acknowledge it, and keep moving on. That's good news. And so as I move forward through this thing and the time crunch hits in, uh, that's going to make probably make me nervous. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I'm not nervous yet. But isn't that how it always goes when you're just starting off? You're, it can be a little funny or humorous right. at the start, but two weeks from now, it's like if you're not getting what you needed done, Two weeks from now, it's like you haven't done any of your homework and the midterm is coming. Yes. And the worst thing is to be in the place where the night before you haven't got anything done and then you're cooked. Right. We start out when we have a big goal, you know, there's excitement. So, you know, somebody sets their New Year's resolution January 1st, we're excited about it. But January 18th, the excitement's worn off and nobody's at the gym anymore because we're like, oh, I don't really want to do that or it's hard or you really get in the nitty gritty of it and you think, well, I didn't think it was going to be this hard. So just knowing up front, okay, I'm excited. Yeah, it's, it's not always going to feel this exciting by next week, next month. It's going to be hard. Uh, what are my expectations of what I'm going to have to do? And I think one of the most important things is to know, well, what do I have to give up? What do you have to give up in your life to focus on? Oh, I saw a quote about that. I, I think it was something along the lines of, uh, in order to get what you want, you have to know what you will give up. Right. And I think that that, for a lot of people, is their downfall. They never focus on, well, what does this mean I have to give up? 
somebody says, I'm going to go start going to the gym every day. Well, what does that mean? I have to give up maybe the hour and a half I spent on the couch watching TV or you make some sort of a goal to know that, uh, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to write a book. What do I have to give up? Maybe it's weekends and nights for the next six months. Maybe it's time with your family, but just acknowledging I'm going to have to give up a lot of stuff in order to make this happen and and then expect that because otherwise we get into thinking, you know, we don't give it up or we think this isn't fair or we don't grieve sort of the things that we're losing by gaining something else. More good advice from Amy. <laughs> Man, you are a treasure trove of advice. I'm seeing why these books are bestsellers now. Well, thank you author of the international bestseller. <laughs> that must make you feel really good. It's kind of surreal. So, you know, to go from a therapist in rural Maine, where I was working one-on-one -on -one with people, to now I get emails from people in other countries. My first book is in, I think it's 35 languages now. So I get emails from people on the other side of the globe who say, thank you. And like you, I feel compelled to reply to as many emails as I as I can. But you know, just overwhelming to know that somebody in on the other corner of the earth, I got an email from somebody in the Sudan who was walking to a library 20 minutes every day to, to read the book. And wow. yeah, and I think, wow, how did that, you know, I'm just somebody from rural Maine. How did that become my life that somebody on the other corners of the planet are now reading this book that I wrote? That's absolutely beautiful. Yeah. And it's, it, it, it actually aligns with where I'd like to go. It's really about helping people. Right. And so maybe in the end, no grand gesture is even grand enough if at the end of it, you, you can help somebody. Or you can help make the world better. I think that's just it, right? Is knowing that you have the power to make somebody's life better. And we all have the opportunity to do it. It's just about taking those steps and saying, well, what do I have to give to the world? And what can I, what can I do? And how do I dream big enough? And I think most of us don't. And even as a therapist, I was thinking, you know, this is wonderful. I get to help these people one at a time in my therapy office. And I'm talking to people about dreaming bigger and setting bigger goals. It never occurred to me that in my life I would someday be writing books that would be read across the globe or that I'd be speaking on a stage to thousands of people rather than just one person at a time. But I'm living proof that sometimes the things that happen to you, you can turn them into opportunities to go out and do bigger stuff than you even imagined. I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> I'm following. You're my first coach, Amy. Well, actually, it may be the third because we've got some folks on LinkedIn who uh, have uh, happily jumped in. Well, I'm excited. I already want to. I'm already thinking about what can I do online? Who can I reach out to? How can I be on this team, too? Because for so many of us, I think we want to help. Sometimes we don't always know what to do. But uh. Well, well he here's the thing. Here's uh, you, you can't help yeah. because I, I know I'm starting to understand how the speaking world works. And generally... If somebody speaks in a place and gets a great response, it's fantastic. Uh, but they're not going to have you back next year because right. you've already gotten a standing ovation there. Everybody's loved you. And next year, it's going to be somebody else. So maybe if you know like one person, mm -hmm. one event planner who's 
got events and you just say, you know, there's this guy out there. Right. He's a good speaker. He talks about storytelling. You ought to just look at his sizzle reel. See if it works for you. Because if I can get like a hundred people or 200 people to do that, maybe I'm there. Right. I don't know. I'd be absolutely happy to do that. I'm already running through my head. Who are all the people that could that could hire you? And I think, again, I think that, uh, I mean, who, who wouldn't want to know more about storytelling? It's so applicable to... This is the thing. I know, I just know that what I have can help people. Right. You know, there's this thing in speaking, which I, I had to learn. Because when I started to speak, it was about the power of questions, mm -hmm. which was very interesting to a few people, not the masses of people. Right. It, you had to have a, a, a mind that really was very curious and wanted to know what questions could do for your business. But when you tell people the facts about how much information there is out there and how difficult it is to get your information through that tornado. Right. Everybody gets it immediately. Right. So I like I it, and what they told me in speaking was you need a call to action. Yes. And I didn't have a call to action for a long time, but then I found my call to action. And so now I'm ready to use it. Yes. And here I am, bearing my soul to you, Amy. <laughs> Thank you so much. This has been an amazing time. And I'm just so glad for the nuggets of wisdom you've passed on. And because not only did you nurture my mind and a lot of other minds, because there are people listening in Mongolia, but also I walk out of here with a lighter sense on my feet, there's going to be a, a skip to my walk. Because you told me, keep those positive thoughts going in the way you're thinking. If you can keep the motion going that way, it will get you through the obstacles. Yes. Well, I'm excited for you. I'm so, you know, <laughs> you've already set me in motion of thinking what I can do to, to help you reach your goal too. Thank you so much. I, and now I'm accountable to you. Right. So I'm going to let you know how it's going. And I'm going to encourage everybody to look up your books. Do, do, do you just call them the 13 things since you now got uh, mentally strong women don't do, mentally strong parents don't do, and mentally strong people don't do? Do you have a nickname for this? Well, I'll ask because people, oh, I read your book. And I'll say, did you read people, parents, or women? <laughs> <laughs> so if you're a person, a parent, or a woman, Amy has got a book for you. And I'm sure a lot more based on what we've heard today. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming here. You made my day, Amy. Well, thanks for having me. All right. That about wraps it up. I want to thank Tim Ferriss for nudging me to start this podcast. When he did, I never would have imagined that a guest would have flown across the country to be on it. But Amy Morin did, and I'll always be grateful for that. 
As the weeks unfold, I'll tell you more about my latest odyssey, Million Dollar May. It may be preposterous, but it'll probably be fun. If you know a company that needs help telling its story, please let me know through my email on Squarespace. And if you're listening in Europe, wanted to tell you that I'm going to be doing a storytelling workshop in Munich at the end of the first week of July. It's available to the public. More details about that forthcoming. Thanks for coming along on the journey with me. And please send me photos of where you listen to big questions. One day, we just might clink glasses. Cheers! Cheers!